All right, take your Bibles if you would and turn to 1 Peter. We are in chapter 1. We've been going through the series. And what I thought would be good to do today is a review of where we've been so far because we're getting really close to the wrap-up of chapter 1. And the message today is fortitude, love well, assess correctly. Uh, We're going to get to the love well part. We're not going to make it to the assess correctly part. That'll be next week. And uh, when we go through the message, you'll understand why. But let's do a review of chapter 1. You can kind of just go along with your finger and track through. But Peter starts out and he says, According to his great mercy, we have been born again into a living hope. In other words, God has been kind to us. Anybody God's been merciful to in here? Yeah, me too. Hello. I'm with you. And so he says, as a result of that kind of great mercy that we are born again into a living hope. In other words, this is not just tradition. This is not just ritual. This is not just a story. This is a living thing right now as God's interacting with his people. And we're, we're born again into that hope. Second thing that Peter points out is that uh, our inheritance then, because of that hope, is kept in heaven for us. And he says it is imperishable, undefiled, all right, and unfading. In other words, it's not going to break down, it's not going to rust out, it's not going to fade out, it's not going to fall apart, it's not going to do all those things that out here you know happens if you set something outside and leave it for there for five years, you do not come back and expect it to be better. You expect it to either be gone or collapsed, right? And he's saying, hey, your inheritance is kept in a really safe place. Your Father in Heaven's got it secured up in Heaven for you. It's going nowhere and it's not going to fade, diminish, or anything. So be really excited about that. Third thing he says is that, and because of that, then the genuineness of your faith gets tested by various trials. Anybody run into various trials? Right? Yeah, there's a few of them out there. And usually what you'll find out about various trials is they pick you, you didn't pick them. Right? So uh, Al Al Robert was in the uh, second service and I quoted him because we were standing out in the lobby and he said, you know, I've come to see those kind of trials as divine appointments. They're divine assignments that God has given to me. And a lot of times he says, I argue with the Lord. Really? That's hard. I, I don't know if I can do that. And the Lord comes back to me and says, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You can do that. And he says, so I've come to see them as assignments that are really important. And he says, and when I lean into them, I find out that I've grown and I've learned something about me I didn't know before. And he says, I've also learned something about the Lord that I didn't know before. So rather than treating it as an enemy, he treats it, as an opportunity and an assignment. And I think that's a good way to look at it. And what what does this all do? Peter says at the end, this is going to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just for us, but for the Lord Jesus. In other words, as we follow through, this is just going to roll out and Jesus is going to look spectacular because we cooperated with him and he's going to say, well done, well done, my children, my family, well done. And most of us would die to hear that. Right? That's what Peter's trying to encourage them. Remember, he's talking to the elect exiles. He's talking to a group of people that have been uprooted, displaced. And if you're an exile, a lot of times, even where you land, you're not sure it's going to be permanent. Right? It's on shaky, sandy ground, and you might have to move uh, in the blink of an eye. And so he's talking to people who know that kind of uncertainty. Then he says, because of all that, even though you don't see him, you love him. And isn't that true today? We haven't seen him. He doesn't stand on stage like I do. And yet, if I said, do you know him? You'd say, yes, I do. 
Yes, I do. I, I do know the imprint of his spirit on my life. And he says, because you, even though you don't see him, you love him. And he's reminding the church how much they love him. And that's something we always have to be reminded. Yes, God loves us, but we need to be reminded we love him too. Right? And we're going to talk about that. This goes right into the message this morning. I think it'll be a great encouragement for you. Then the other thing he says is, hey, you know the stuff that's rolling out in your age, the stuff that God's doing? The prophets and angels long to look into it. Okay? And so they, they're like, really? What's he going to do next? Wow, I didn't expect that to roll out. Did you know me either? Whoa! Right? And heaven's on its tiptoes watching to see what's actually going to happen. And he said, uh, these things have been saved and revealed for us who now have come uh, in the last times. And then he says, because of that then, we need to be prepared and sober-minded. In other words, it's not all going to be easy. It's not going to be a cakewalk. There are going to be really tough challenges. So we need to be sober and uh, prepared and sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, it's not all here. It's not all now. It's not going to happen this minute. Uh, we have to remember as Christians, our reward isn't down here. That So much of what you hear today is grab everything you've got, get everything you can. Number one, you deserve it. Have you heard that on TV and radio, right? You deserve this car. You deserve that job. You deserve that career. Get the education. It'll get you what you deserve. Because why? This, from the perspective, is all there is. So you better be nasty, you better be gnarly, you better grab, you better shake, pull, bite, steal, whatever, to get what you want because there's nothing else. The Bible says absolutely not. Your greatest reward isn't down here, never will be. Another way you hear it said is, hey, don't settle. right? Don't settle. You're worth so much more. There's so much more you could do. So you don't like your car, don't settle for that car. Get a better car. You don't like that stereo system, get a better. You don't like that phone, get a better phone. You don't like that marriage, get a better marriage. Just upgrade. right? Don't settle. What are they saying? Because it's all about right here. This is the only thing you've got. The Bible says absolutely opposite, not. There's so much greater. You will never settle if you're being obedient to what the Lord's asked you to do, even if you don't get anything down here that you want. Okay? I was yesterday, just a funny story on this. I got caught on this myself because I knew I was going to say this. And then I pull into, where was it? Hill Creek somewhere. And this really cool four-wheel drive truck pulls up, right? I won't give you the brand, but it was awesome. And I just went, oh. And out of the truck comes this like 72-year-old woman. And I went, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. She's got a truck like that, and I'm driving a minivan. Really? Ha! So I got rebuked on my own stuff. Okay, just so you know, I can track with you. Couldn't believe that. She got on and went, I was expecting some burly lumberjack dude. And, oh my gosh. All right. Next what he says is, and because of those things now, don't be conformed to your former stuff, your former lust, the former things that captivated you, the former things that pulled you, the sin, the bitterness, the anger, the rage, all that kind of stuff. Because um, we are to be holy. And we spent three weeks looking at holiness and just getting back to, what does it mean to be holy again? And being holy means to be in step with the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that line. And God moved the line on any of you, right, last couple of weeks? Oh, okay. You've got to stay in step with them. Stay on the right side of the line. 
And then he says, uh, goes on to say, because of that, we should conduct ourselves with fear. Why? Not while on our pilgrimage down here, while we're down here, we should uh, respond with respect and honor and fear towards the Lord. Why? Because God is the judge. Okay? He is the judge. He is going to judge everyone and everything. You can't juke around it. You can't dance around it. You can't lie your way around it. You can't avoid it. It is coming on like a freight train, and you will A, either meet him covered under his blood and therefore rescued by that, or you will meet him on your own merits. And if you're going to meet him on your own merits, then you have to do everything perfect always for the rest of your life. And if not, then you come under the judgment. You cannot get away from God's judgment. Peter is letting him know that you can't do it. What's powerful about that? In the midst of the fear of that judgment, we have been ransomed by Christ, by the blood of Christ. The scripture holds up the blood of Christ higher than anything else. And it says uh, higher than silver, higher than gold, higher than precious jewels, that kind of stuff. There's nothing more precious in the universe in the eyes of God than the shed blood of his son. And it goes all the way back to the Passover and the mantles being covered with blood and the angel of death passed over. When you're covered by the blood of Christ, you are passed over judgment and God reconciles with us. So it's just an incredible thing that Peter's pointing out here. And the other thing he's saying is that God has manifested himself through Jesus Christ so that our faith and hope must be anchored in him. Right? So... This idea of manifested means that God, once for all, when he showed up, when Jesus showed up, he was born uh, and he walked this earth for 30 years and then for three years did ministry. Then he was uh, crucified on a cross. Then he was buried in a tomb and uh, given up for dead. And then he was risen to life. And because of that, that's not just a story. Because of that, it says God has manifested himself once for all, for all time, the scriptures say, that Jesus has done that. And because he's done that, we need to be fully anchored in him. I remember growing up in the Midwest and me and my buddies would fish lakes and a lot of times a wind would come up and if you didn't have the anchor set very well, all of a sudden you'd notice you were starting to drift across the lake because the anchor wasn't really held. And what scripture is saying is make sure the anchor's anchored well. So when the pressure, when the wind kicks up, you don't start drifting. You don't start drifting off and going off course with the Lord. You stay anchored in your spot because you know that the Lord has manifested himself to you. All right, well, there's the review. So let's go on now to verse 22 and 23. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, as we've um, just done the review, the review is pretty powerful in and of itself. Great reminders in there and eternal things in there. As we come to this part, Lord, you know... uh, how it's gone the first two services. And I pray again that that will pour out this service. And I seek you, Lord, as we talk about uh, this issue of you loving us, that it will not just be a head thing, but it will be a heart thing. And people will sense you moving in close to them. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen. So if you're saying, are we going somewhere this morning? Yes, we are. Yes, yes, we are. All right. Starting with First Peter then, it says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In this sense, the living and abiding word of God is the living word. All right? Jesus as the word in the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. 
Okay, And so Jesus is the living word. Peter is saying you have been uh, born again, not of perishable seed, not that that can die, but of imperishable. In other words, what God has done in us is eternal. He says as a result of that, you need to have a sincere brotherly love. Notice it says having purified your souls by obedience. And the idea here, uh, the Bible indicates in many places it makes this connection. I don't know if you've made it before, but you'll probably be able to connect a bunch of other scriptures where it connects purity to our ability to love well. Right? In other words, impurity does something that wrecks stuff. And so when it comes then to loving, I actually do it very badly. And so, for example, someone would say, well, what difference does it matter if I just lust in my mind? It's really not hurting anybody. I'm not offending anybody. It's really got no uh, repercussion at all. That's not true because when you lust, you get frustrated with life because people don't do what you want to do. And then when it comes to your family situation, you get edgy. You get owly. You get upset because they aren't doing what you want to do. And as a result, you end up loving very poorly. And so Scripture is saying there's a huge connection between purity of your spirit and ability to love well. And notice what Peter says here. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Twice he mentions it in one sentence. That's how important it is. In other words, there's something to our ability to love well that is connected to the ability to be obedient to the truth, i.e. to have a pure heart. The purer my heart is, the easier it is to love well. Okay? That would also be uh, if you are ambitious or you are prideful or you are arrogant. How well does that translate when you try to love other people? Right? This is something always off. You can't put your finger on it, but it just doesn't work well. If you allow the Lord to purify those motives, to purify your heart, that translates directly proportionally to your ability to love well. We've uh, captured this in our mission statement. If you uh, have seen our mission statement online or you've looked at it, we try to show it up here quite often. It says, Northview Community Church is committed to encouraging people to become more like who? Jesus. Not like Steve, not like the elder board, not like Brooks, not like, right? We hope we're good guys, but the reality is more like Jesus. And we encourage people to do that by celebrating God, serving one another, and sharing our love of Jesus with other people. Um, there's another translation out there. I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's the MTV translation. Have you heard of that? Yeah, MTV, Mitchell's Theological Version. You could put some other words in there. Let me give you some words that would fit really nicely with that definition up there. Love God, love each other well, and love those who don't know Jesus yet. Right? Love God, love each other well, love those who don't know Jesus yet. And this is right where we get snagged, right? Because people are difficult to love. Have you noticed that? Okay. Uh, we, it's amazing what looks so terrible in someone else looks very um, okay in me. Right? And we have tremendous blind spots with that. And, and so uh, I find it hard to love people. People irritate me, right? And so one of the ways you can get around that is if there's somebody here you don't like and they go to first service, just come to third. Ha! 
Oh, I love them, Lord, from 50 miles away. Fabulous. But have you never noticed the Lord doesn't get, let you get away with that? He seems to put those people in close to you. Like, and he says, I want you to love them. And you go, really? They drive me nuts. Yeah, I know. That's why I want you to love them. Right? You ever have those? Dis- no, I'm the only one. Right? And, and you're just like, oh, I don't know how to do that. And God goes, precisely. Now, and what I tell people all day, by the way, this is one of my great tricks of the Christian life. So I give it to you freely because it was shared by me by somebody. I can't remember who, but uh, there was a particular person back that I was having a hard time with. And the, my mentor said, hey, ask God to give you a love for that person. I go, what? I love them. I don't even like them. He says, yeah, I know. But ask God to give you a matter of fact. He said, ask God to give you his love for that person. In other words, ask God to show you how he loves that person and then just follow in those footsteps. And I found that to be incredibly true advice is that when I take that mindset, suddenly the whole picture shifts. And so love God, love each other well, love those who don't know Jesus yet. Here's why this is fascinating to me. What's fascinating to me is what Peter emphasizes at the end of this chapter. All right? And I know a lot about Peter, and I've read the scripture a lot, and I've studied him a lot. And so I got caught on this point because he's, he's the leader of the church, right? Paul is the church planner. Paul is the missionary. Paul is the theologian of the church. But Peter's the leader of the church. Peter leads the whole thing. And he's not advocating huge building programs. He doesn't make for a power pull here. Uh, He doesn't ask for greater organization. He doesn't even encourage them to develop greater strategies. When he's talking to the church and saying, hey, I know you're going through a rough time. Everything's going, uh, you know, upside down. Let me give you this strategy. What What does he advocate? He advocates that they love each other better. Huh. That is not what you would have thought he would say. Love each other better. Sanctify yourselves, purifying your souls by obedience to truth for what? A sincere brotherly love. Okay? And let's not get into this whole politically correct thing. Always talking about men, he's leaving women out. Women, you don't have to worry about that. It's all of us, all right? Hello? Read past the language. For sincere brotherly love. And notice the emphasis from a pure heart. This isn't just great theology, which it is. But what I want to suggest this morning, this is way more than theology. This is an amazing love story. All right? And right at that point, click, I just lost all the guys. All right? Guys, hang with me for a second. Okay? Um, this won't be a chick flick. Okay? This is coming from Peter. All right? Think of what you know about Peter. This is Peter the fisherman. This is Peter the mouth. This is Peter, you ain't washing my feet. This is Peter the sword slasher. But this is also Peter the denier. This is also Peter the crushed. But even greater than all of those, this is Peter the honored, and this is Peter the loved. And one of the things, as Peter goes through life, and he gets older, funny how you get older, you see things differently. And Peter starts reflecting on what really happened between him and Jesus. And his best advice to the church is, hey, love each other the way Jesus has loved you. Where's he getting that from? Where does... Where does he just pull that out of a hat? No, I want to suggest to you it comes from 
of really intense life experience of this. Peter has had time to digest and process his time with Jesus. And when he looks back, something really crystallizes for him. What is it? What it is, is that he comes away with the incredible take on how Jesus had loved him and that that made all the difference. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 20. Take your Bibles, turn there or or flip there. You know the setting. It's a story. Uh, It kind of looked like everything was done and uh, Jesus had died. And so Peter said, hey, I'm going to go back fishing. The other 11 said, well, okay, he's the leader. We'll follow him. They all went back fishing. So they fished all night, got nothing. Guy on shore says, hey, catch anything? Nah, nothing. And it says, well, throw the net on the other side of the boat. What difference would that stupid thing make, right? You fished all night. But they, whatever, throw it over the other side. Nets loaded with fish. They come in. Peter recognizes it's the Lord. He jumps in the water. They come on the beach. As they come on the beach, here's a, yeah, a charcoal fire going. There's fish grilling on already. Where to get the fish? You, you can, he's made up that stuff before, so it's not hard for him. And, um, and so they sit around. It says they're sitting around eating. And then it says, after the meal was done. So here they are, they're having a meal. They're talking, you know how you talk around meals and chatter if there's 11 people. It's like a big family gathering. Everybody's yakking back and forth and talking kind of stuff. And then sometimes in a family, have you ever had been at one of these where there's this pause and somebody blurts out the question that stops everything, right? Like, oh, oh, they said that, oh my gosh, right? And so they're going along talking and they're having this conversation. The meal's done and there's this pause and Jesus looks right at Peter. Okay? Now, think about when you're with your buddies and you get singled out with your buddies. Right? Guys, we know what this feels like. All of a sudden you get really nervous. Your palms start to sweat. Your heart starts to pound. You're sitting there going, uh-oh. And you're wondering what he's going to say. And it says that they'd, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Could hear a pin drop. Everybody's froze. They're looking at Peter. They're looking at Jesus. Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He's looking straight at Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Now, here's the part we can't capture. I don't know Jesus' countenance. I don't know his tone. I don't know his inflection. I don't know his uh, body posture as he did it. And I don't know Peter's either, but I can guarantee you this. It was galvanized, right? It was galvanized. Time froze right there. And he says to him a second time, uh, he says, uh, you know that I love you. He says, well, feed my lambs. Then he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Doesn't get off the track. Right when you're a kid and you get asked twice, you know you're in trouble, right? This is really important. Are you listening to what I said? Right? Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. At this point, Peter's hoping this interview is over really quick. But it's not over. Comes the third time. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because what would you expect Jesus to do at that point? From a human perspective, don't you expect to be berated? Don't you expect to be put down? Don't you expect Jesus to say, hey, could we go back to that little incident that happened back at the high priest's house? Could we talk about that here? Peter's just waiting to get squashed. 
stuck right on top, right? And it'd be put down in front of all his buddies and it'd be made fun of and just to be lamb-blasted. Simon, son of John, do you love me? You can imagine the anguish in Peter's heart. He's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. In other words, what's he saying? I have no way out of this. I've got nothing to bring to the table. I, I blew it. But I still love you. And then he says, feed my sheep. What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing? He was reinstating Peter. Peter thought he'd blown it. He thought he'd thrown it all out the window. The whole kingdom thing, this whole thing of loving God, serving God, being used by God, having a role from God. He thought that was all thrown out the window. He was going to go back to what he knew how to do, fishing. He felt disqualified. All right? And he was just waiting for Jesus to seal the deal so that he could say, yeah, I know I'm an idiot and a jerk, and I hope you're happy, and I'll just leave now. And it never came. It never, that other shoe never dropped. Jesus wasn't rebuking him. Jesus was blessing him. Jesus was reinstating him. Okay? And I want to suggest something this morning. There's a whole lot of people in the church, not just all the churches, our church, that need to be instated back to the original dream Jesus had for you that you've forgotten about and given up years ago. Why? Because you blew it. Because you messed up. You walked away. You got your eyes off and trashed your life and wound up way different place than you thought. And Jesus comes back and he looks at you. Just stop for a second. How profound would that question be the third time around? How profound? Uh, what would that have sounded like to Peter? Can you put yourself in his shoes? Just think of Jesus staring straight in your eyes and three times looking at you, never blinking, and saying, do you love me? He's calling Peter back to the greater cause, the greater good. Now we could take this incident as a singular incident, but it shows up with others as well who were equally impacted just like Peter was. John captured this in his gospel. If you go back a few chapters into John 13, he records something that Jesus said that's been used all through the history of the church. It says, The new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, Jesus is saying, as I have loved you disciples, you are now to love one another. Why, why was that a big thing? What, had the disciples done well at loving each other? No, they were power-broking and, and hen-pecking and uh, juking for position in the kingdom. And it was about pride and it was about we're going to be big shots and we're going to be special and we're going to be used. They kind of forgot the love part. Yeah, well, yeah, the weaklings can love. That's for sissies. We'll... Let the weaklings love. Jesus said, just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, it's not the issue that there's a church here and there's not an issue that there's people in the church. There can be all kinds of people in the church and the world will never know Jesus is alive. The question is not the people in the church. The question is the heart of the people in the church. Do the people in the church love him? Okay. And it's calling us back to that primary first thing. Remember when Jesus first found you? And remember you realized for the first time that he loved you and was willing to forgive you? I said others got caught with this. Uh, Paul came up with the same conclusion. We think of Paul as a theologian and 
He uses all the predestined language and since the foundation of the world. And we think of Paul as kind of a rather energetic, heartless guy. But Paul wrote this right here in 1 Corinthians. He said, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Do you remember the context that was set in? Do you remember the chapter, chapter 13? Considered one of the greatest chapters ever written in the history of the world. It reads like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's an interesting one. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. NIV would say love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away, and as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What would take Paul, who is arrogant, self-righteous, treacherous, mean, vindictive, right? What would take a person like that and flip him into somebody who writes something like this? For Peter, it was a one-on-one conversation on the beach. For Paul, it was what? On the way to Damascus, probably to jail and kill more people. And he gets knocked off his horse and... The voice says, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you? He says, Jesus. Can you imagine the shock when Paul meets Jesus face to face and realizes, I have been persecuting the wrong dude. I'm on the complete wrong side of the coin, the ledger. Oh, my gosh. By the way, Jesus, little sense of humor. Hey, Paul, hard to kick against the goads. (laughs) Kick as hard as you want. Some of us have kicked pretty hard. And it's hard to kick against the goats. And so Paul comes away. And what Paul's saying is, hey, when I was a child, I acted. In other words, I, I did mean things. I did petty things. I did little, selfish, rude, arrogant things. He says, but when I became a man, I put the childish things away. And he says the words, Paul came away with the impression, you know what? I started to learn to love like God's loves. And if you list, list, find the list of what Paul went through to love the church, it's astounding how mature and how great his love became because he and Jesus had a one-on-one conversation. You know, not only uh, Peter and not only Paul, but John came away with the same perspective. We uh, tend to discount John because we know John was the disciple that Peter loved. And so we say, well, yeah, it's easy for him to do. He's cheating. He's Jesus' favorite. Jesus' little pet. And so John just gets away with that kind of stuff. No, no, remember James and John were called what? Sons of... Thunder, and when uh, they got upset, you know, and the, this this village, Samaritan village, didn't cooperate, they came and said, "Hey, do you want us to call down fire and lightning and just smoke these people?" John was no, you know, Johnny Milktoast. We forget that about him, and he comes in and says, he comes away with this same assessment. In First John chapter four, he says this: "So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We have come to know." And believe the love that God has for us. We have put our trust in. We have anchored in it. 
God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Abide means lives together. Right? The picture of a family that loves each other. God abides with us. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. In other words, if we allow Jesus to teach us how to love, then we won't have any fear of the judgment. If you take the verses after this, immediately following, it says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love first because he loved us. It's not that we loved him, it's that he loved us. And when Peter and Paul and John get to the end of their lives, they're looking at it, they're going, wow, he really loved me. I can see, I can, I, hindsight's twenty twenty. I can look back now and I can see all the places and the fingerprints and the footsteps. What an overwhelming relationship. What an overwhelming love God has had for me. Let's go back to Peter. As I said, towards the end of his life, what stands out to him? Again, he's the leader of this huge growing movement. But what stands out as primary? What's the foundational exhortation he's giving to the church? These people have been in upheaval, been dispersed, lost their homes, lost their job, lost their property. What is the the primary exhortation that that he gives them? It's pretty simple. Love God with all your heart. Be grateful. Secondly, love others who are fellow believers well. And third, love those who don't know Jesus yet. How did that get crystallized in Peter's mind and spirit? It was that little meeting on the beach when Jesus stopped the whole thing, looked in his eyes and said, Peter, you love me? I don't think that ever got out of Peter's mind. I don't think that ever left him. I think that marked him everywhere he went and it marked how he responded to people. And when you see the maturity of Peter... And the leader he's become, we like to hang on Peter the Goof. He was a phenomenal world-class leader. And one of the things he was really good at, loving the people who are under his charge. Where did he learn that from? He learned that from Jesus because Jesus loved him well when he blew it. And he loved these people well when they're blowing it. How do I know they blew it? Because there's exhortations later in the book. What if this morning, instead of me on the stage... It's Jesus. I go sit down and he gets on the stage and says, Hey, Norfew, I'm so excited to be here this morning. I'd like to talk to you. Can I ask you a question? And the room freezes. And he starts looking us in the eye. He says, Norfew, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. And he comes back a second time. Norfew, do you love me? What if he gets more personal than that? What if he doesn't just talk to us as a group, but he starts to zero in individually? And, um, and he looks at us and he forgets the rest of the crowd. And he looks and goes, Amy, do you love me? BJ, do you love me? Jeff, do you love me? You're wondering who I'm going to pick on next, right? What if he went down line by line, right? Martha, do you love me? Tim, do you love me? Clark, do you love me? Ben, do you love me? 
Rob, you love me? Soren, you love me? How would we respond? I want to suggest what Peter's encouraging us to do is to respond back, yes, Lord, we love you. Primarily what he's looking for is not right performance, although that's important. He's looking for us to love him. And when Peter looks over the whole landscape, his whole encouragement to the church is love each other well. Love God. Love each other well. Love those who don't know Jesus yet. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we come, there's a, there's a sense of presence of you staring in our eyes and asking us that question. And we're, we're going to sing a song here, Lord, that is going to reflect not only the earlier songs we sang this morning, but the whole message. And it, it's going to be a chance for us to look you in the eye and say we love you. And uh, Lord, we want you to know we love you. We also know we're pretty poor at it. We know we blow it a lot. We know that there is enormous inconsistencies in our attitudes and in our performance. And we would ask this morning that you would help us focus on learning to love the way you love people. We think that's easy till we try to do it. And then we realize how vastly different you are from us. Would you help us with that this morning? May we come out of here feeling blessed and encouraged because you would look at us just like Peter and say, do you love me? And what you're doing is I want to reinstate you to your dreams. I had a call on your life. There's something I wanted you to do. And you've fallen off of that. And in the result of that, you've fallen away from me and you've, you've forgotten how to love me. Do you love me? And we want to respond back to you, Lord. Yes, we love you. Would you enjoy this song as we worship back to you? And we ask this in your name. Amen.